Next week, we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at the sovereignty of God in Psalm chapter 46, how God is in ultimate control over the world he created. And this week, as we've already kind of hinted uh, this morning, we're going to be examining the knowledge of God as revealed in the well-known Psalm of David, Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't already opened them, please turn with me to the 139th chapter of the book of Psalm. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. If you don't know, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible and and are having a hard time finding the book of Psalms, ask the person next to you. I'm I'm sure that they would love that moment to share. Or flip directly to the middle and just slightly left. And I think that you'll, you'll find it. Because sometimes it can be hard to find. Um, my prayer this morning is that each of us would discover much comfort and security and rest uh, in this particular attribute of God's knowledge. Um, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that unlike God, we humans only possess partial knowledge. Our knowing is only in part. And this limitation is not a design flaw. The fact that we don't know all things is a mercy that God has extended to us. He's graciously designed it by himself that God has limited our knowledge that we would learn to trust him and rely on him, not on ourselves and not on our own understanding. But if you know the biblical story, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they didn't see this inherently limited knowledge as a mercy or as a good thing. None of us do. See, at the serpent's invitation, if we were to flip back to the first three chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis 3, at the serpent's invitation, Adam and Eve threw their trust in God to the wind in favor of trusting themselves. They disobediently ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In their finite humanness, they were not content with trusting and relying on God's knowledge. They coveted God's knowledge. They wanted to be God's. And so they reached for a level of knowledge that they were not designed to have. And as their descendants, us, finite and fallen human beings, we do the same thing. In fact, you might say that we 21st century humans find ourselves in the midst of a knowledge and an information feeding frenzy. With over three and a half billion Google searches per day, with voice-activated encyclopedias in almost every living room like Alexa and Google Home, with moment-by-moment alerts, 24-7 news feeds, 3,000 smartphone touches per person per day. We want to know everything. We want to know who Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are inviting to their wedding. Susan does. We want to know what type of supplements to take, what kind of foods to avoid, which changes every month. 
We want to know what vehicle gets, gets the best reviews, what stocks are falling and rising, what banks are offering the best interest rate. And it's no wonder why people in 21st century are more anxious and more worried and more sleepless than any generation before. We simply are not designed to know everything we are trying to know. We're not designed to know everything that's happening in North Korea. We're not designed to know everything that's happening in Russia and in Congress and in the FBI precinct. We are simply not designed to keep up with everything that is happening on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat all simultaneously. And I'm not saying, and the word does not say, that we shouldn't care at all about any of these things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is a fine line between being reasonably, responsibly informed and reaching for omniscience. There is a fine line. Line, And I'm afraid that myself, and maybe if it's true for you, too many of us Christians, we're not okay with only knowing in part. We want to know in whole. And we're clamoring for the security of information and knowledge. And when we get it, we find we're not any more at peace. So I'm not advocating at all that we turn off our pursuit of knowledge. I'm advocating, and Scripture advocates, that above all else, we pursue knowing and trusting and resting in the one who knows all things as we were created to do. I wonder, I've wondered for the last few days as I've been preparing my mind in this passage what the church would look like if we all powered down our eye products for a month in favor of resting in his inexhaustible and inescapable knowledge. Just simply letting it suffice that we know the one who knows everything and letting that be okay. Because our God is good and omniscient. He knows all things He knows us and the world around us better than we do or we will ever, better than we ever will. And so we can worshipfully rest in the assurance of his good care. We can be freed from the burden of clamoring for information to develop our safety nets. And I think that is one vein that Psalm 139 really gets at. There was never a time in Lindsay and I's lives where we more appreciated and celebrated and delighted in the omniscience of God than when I was told while I was leading worship at church seven years ago that my daughter Finley had collapsed and was seizing. And as we drove to the hospital in Columbus, there was something about resting. God You know all things and you're here and that has to be enough. And it was in that moment enough. And she's she's great. She's sitting right here not paying attention to what I'm saying. (laughs) Let's read from Psalm chapter 139. We're going to read the whole thing. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, well, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, well, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who spoke these words through men onto these pages, I pray that you would teach us this word, that you would help us to savor your truth that we would worship you in spirit and that we would glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the King above all kings, that we would glorify the Godhead as we enjoy you and your truth in your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to look at three things from this text this morning. 
Number one, the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. It's his omniscience. We're going to look at how the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. Number two, we're then going to look at the God of knowledge, how the God of knowledge is inescapable. So the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. The God of knowledge is inescapable. That's his omnipresence. And finally, number three, we're going to consider what our response to such an all-knowing and all-present God ought to be. So if you want to summarize those points, number one, we're looking at omniscience. Number two, we're looking at omnipresence. And number three, we're looking at our response to those things. Let's look at number one. The knowledge of God is inexhaustible. We see in verses one through six that God's knowledge includes our moment-by-moment physical, mental, and spiritual whereabouts. He knows when we are seated, such as right now. He knows when we rise up. Unlike Santa Claus, God actually knows when we are sleeping and when we are awake. He knows each of our every thoughts. He discerns them from afar. As I read that, how terrifying it is that God discerns some of my thoughts and yet how humbling it is that he continues to love us, love me, and show me mercy. He knows where each of us is going later on today. He, uh, he knows what we will do and what we will say. He sees and knows every single detail of our entire lives. God is omniscient. As theologian A.W. Pink wrote, he knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and in earth and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. So well may we say with the psalmist, and this is verse 6 of our text this morning, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, Lord. I cannot attain unto it. His knowledge is perfect, Pink continues. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. How wonderful is the God of the Bible. No eye saw Cain murder Abel, but God did. And he held him to account. Though David... King David, the writer of Psalm 139, though David tried to cover his tracks of adultery with Bathsheba, God knew the truth and he sent the prophet to hold David to account. This is precisely the ground upon which Numbers 32 can declare so boldly that our sin will find us out. He sees and hears and knows it all, even that which is done in secret. Even the darkness is not dark to him. Verse 12. He sees the things that we watch in our hotel rooms when no one is around. He hears the whispers of our gossip after community group. 
He reads our arrogant and judgmental thoughts towards those of lesser social statuses. How convicting is this attribute of God's knowledge, his omniscience, and yet how comforting when we can't find the right words to pray. We needn't worry in those moments because he knows our thoughts. He knows what our hearts want to say to him even before a word or a complete sentence is uttered from our mouths. He already knows altogether what we're trying to say in our times of prayer. Isn't it so freeing in those speechless moments of life when we're driving our daughters to the hospital as they're seizing? Or we're in the hospital with a loved one or we've we've received a bad diagnosis? Isn't it amazing that our speechlessness does not keep him from hearing us? Because he is omniscient, he hears our prayers before we've prayed them. He hears our future prayers and our silent prayers. This profound truth brings David a lot of comfort and security. Like a a warm blanket, David writes in verse 5 that the all-knowingness of God hems him in behind and before. Like a good father laying his child down to sleep, God places his hand upon David after hemming him in. He places his hand upon us to let us know that he's near, that he's not going anywhere. This is a promise of Scripture. And so in those seasons of life when we feel distant, that God is not near, that he doesn't have our hand upon our back hemming us in, maybe we should ask, are we drawing near to him in his word? Are we separating ourselves from him? Is that why we're not sensing this nearness? There are going to be seasons in which his hand is not seen, but like a good pilot who learns to fly through clouds he can't see, he's using his instruments, like a good pilot who learns to fly in the blind, when believers don't see God's hand, they trust his heart. They continue forward trusting the promises of his word. And so the next time you're under the gun at work or you're, or you're feeling the pressure of, of a big test at school or the next time you're feeling lost in a season of life, you have a big decision to make and you, and you don't know which way to turn or, or maybe you feel like you just are so lonely, you have nowhere to go. Remember this, he sees you. He knows precisely where you are. And though you may feel lost without a compass or without a map, physically lost, mentally lost, spiritually lost, our all-knowing, omniscient God knows where you're at. He doesn't just know your location. He doesn't just know your coordinates. He knows you to the depths of your being. He has searched you. I love that. He has studied the depths of you. Not as if he needed to learn. He doesn't learn. He studied you in the sense that like an artist who steps back to savor every minute brushstroke of a work of art. He knows you in this way. The way you think. Your tendencies. 
He knows you. Before God brought you into the world, he was intricately weaving you together. Verses 13 through 15, forming even your inner parts, not just body, but mind and soul. Sovereignly and lovingly weaving together your life story. Verse 16. His divine knowledge spans the breadth of existence from eternity past and eternity present and eternity future. God somehow has both feet planted in all three spheres at all times. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, Lord. Vast is the sum of all God's divine knowledge. Verse 17. To count every unit of what he knows would be like counting every grain of the sand. Don't you love that imagery? What a comfort. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray it's a comfort to you this morning that we don't have to know everything ourselves. That we... We need to be given permission to stop trying to know everything ourselves. To stop trying to peer into the magic eight ball or the crystal ball that looks into the future and simply rest to trust and then do the next most reasonable thing, trusting that he is shaping our mind and our decisions. What a relief that we don't have to be trapped in the information-feeding frenzy. Let's look at number two. The God of knowledge is inescapable. He's omnipresent. In verse 7, David rhetorically asks, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? David knows there is nowhere we can go where our all-knowing God is not. The reason God sees and knows all places and times is because he is at once in all places at all times. We've covered it. Eternity past all the way to eternity future. Ephesians 1.23, he fills all in all. As David reflects, starting in verse 8, whether we ascend to the heavens, whether we're buried in the realm of the dead and Sheol, God is there. He's there. He's omnipresent. He is aware of our physical and mental and spiritual whereabouts because where we are, he is as well. We never slip under his radar. The God of all knowledge is inescapable, altogether inescapable. What a comfort again. This was for King David when he was trapped in a cave. He was hiding from the maniacal King Saul who wanted his, his, his head. What a comfort. God was there in the cave with him. When David was on the run from countless foreign enemies, when even when, when his soul went into hiding after sinning against the Lord, God was there with him. He was present. He remained as a shield around David, according to Psalm 3, his glory and the lifter of his head. Man, this, this is a comfort for those who answer the missionary's call to go. That even in the most remote corners of the globe, even those places are fully known because he is fully there. And so those who obediently go, 
even to those remote corners. They don't go into an unknown or uninhabited space. God is already there. What a comfort for those like Annie Lobert. I don't know if you know her name. She was rescued from the wicked clutches of American human trafficking. What a comfort that when she called out to Jesus, even there in the trunk of a car as she was being taken from one hotel room to another, even there she said God was with her. I can't even imagine. Even there, his hand led her and held her with his right hand. What a comfort for those of us who are here who struggle with debilitating depression or who wrestle with fierce doubts or who know people who are bedridden with cancer in, the, in that wing of a hospital. The places that are frighteningly unknown to us are known by God because he is there. I love this stanza from a hymn by Isaac Watts Within thy circling power I stand. On every side I find thy hand. Awake, asleep, at home, abroad, I am surrounded still with God. What a comfort for those of us who were once Jonah's, or maybe our children are Jonah's, trying to outrun the all-knowing presence of of God. Though we may ride the seas to the uttermost, verse 9, he is there, holding and leading with his right hand, guiding and directing according to his ultimate sovereign purposes. We'll talk about that next week, whether we are physically or emotionally or spiritually lost and running from God. Like a boulder trying to escape gravity, our efforts are futile. If that's you this morning, running, you're here, but you're running. Lord, just ask that you would open whosever heart that is. They would see that they're like a boulder trying to escape gravity. That they would turn to you and surrender, Lord. And it's not just the mission field. I think we need to be encouraged from time to time in the right where we're at moment. If you find yourself, and this should be all of us, in Worcester, Ohio this morning, if you work here, if you go to school here, if you're seated here, it's because the omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent creator of the universe has purposed you to be here. You're not here by accident or chance you're not here because of some failure to launch elsewhere. You're here because the God who knows everything about everything has put you here for such a time as this, holding and leading you by his right hand. So, so, so you have specific things to do while you're here, specific things to learn while you're here. We don't know how long we're going to be here. But if you work a specific job or exercise in a specific gym or fill up gas at a specific station... He has you here in order to reflect Christ in those spheres. So let's just live purposefully 
Because the all-knowing God, all-present God, all-seeing God has you right here. Hallelujah for that. I never thought I would live on the, the, the doorfront of Amish country, but I'm super glad to be here. Let's look at point number three. What our response to such an all-knowing, all-present God ought to be. I think today's passage actually offers us three appropriate responses. The first is this. We ought to feel a righteous anger when our all-knowing and all-present God is mocked. David does not mince words in verses 19 through 22, does he? What we see in this passage is not an anger deriving from the flesh. It's not undue, unmerited, or unjust. But it's a righteously just and wrathful anger toward the arrogance of finite men who speak against the infinitely wonderful and wise God as if he were their peer. There is a type of of hatred, and we don't have the time to dig into that word, that God not only allows, he requires. It's a hatred for all that is unjust and ungodly and unholy and unrighteous. And so questions that arose in my mind as I was thinking through this part of the, of the passage, do we hate what God hates? As his people, as his image bearers, do we echo a hatred for what God hates? Do we echo God's disdain for sin and corruption and disorder? Do we bring wicked people to the Lord in prayer? People by name, whom we know are practicing the way of the wicked. Do we bring them to the Lord in prayer? Or do we give approval to the wicked by our silent passivity? Do we join the wicked in certain movie theaters, applauding things that God abhors? Do we lift one hand in worship on Sunday while holding the hand of the world in the other? We, we must be righteously angered as David is when the world mocks God. And yet at the same time, in order that we would remain soft, we must recognize that we all participated in this mockery. Colossians 1.21, we were all once alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds in our rebellion. We were all enemies of God. But unlike all the other little g gods of the world's religions, our all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful God set aside his glory and he was lowered to the earth the God who is everywhere at once became localized in Galilee. The God who knows everything about everything was born as a baby boy who needed to learn and grow in wisdom, in stature. The transcendent God became a man in order to live in our place the obedient, trusting life that we did not, that we refused to live. He died in the place of Adam and Eve and all of us who have reached for omniscience and knowledge so that we would be our own gods. He, Jesus, the God-man, 
did not rely upon his own knowledge, but that which the Holy Spirit gave him to trust in God. He was the perfect human and then died as the imperfect, distrusting human in our place on a cross. The transcendent God became a man so that he might fully relate to us, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4, so that he might fully be able to sympathize with the weaknesses that we bring in with us. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he never sinned. Hallelujah. The second appropriate response, and I'm going to fly through these. I'm running late again. The second appropriate response to such an all-knowing, all-present God is that we ought to desire to be pure before him. We ought to desire that he would reveal any patterns of thought or word or deed that grieve him. David begins and ends this psalm by celebrating and seeking God's intimate knowledge. In verse 1 he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then in verses 23 and 24 he cries out, Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me, oh God, know my thoughts. See if there be any, reveal any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Have you ever prayed this prayer? This is the prayer that God can't not answer. Yes, a double negative sentence. This is the prayer that God will always answer. Show me the darkness in my heart. Shine your light. Even if it's painful, sear it out of me that I would reflect your your purity and holiness. He will answer that prayer and it's appropriate. It's an appropriate response to an all-knowing and all-present God who already sees it all in us anyway. So the third appropriate response to such an all-knowing and all-present God is that we ought to praise him and trust him. Verse 14, David declares adoration and praise to God for the wondrous works of his wondrous knowledge. We have infinite reasons to sing. In the first half of verse 17, David exclaims, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Though we do not know God's thoughts, we trust them because we trust him. Has he not, brothers and sisters, proven himself over and over in his goodness and faithfulness to us? Has he not proven to us over and over with each new day that he can be trusted, that he does indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so while the rest of the world eats itself alive, groping for knowledge that they will never attain so that they would set up their own safety blankets and security nets, may we as the, as the church of Christ rest, rest, I pray that we would all be able to take a huge, deep breath today and to turn down our eye product and to enjoy the glory of resting in the fact that though we know nothing, we know the one who knows everything. 
I'll close with this excerpt from a poem by Georgia Eliot. He knows, yes, he knows. Why not trust him then and confide joys and woes to the Savior of men? Let's pray. I celebrate the fact that before a word is even on my lips in this moment, Lord, you know it all together. I pray that you would imprint your word upon our hearts and that you would grant us a heightened trust. You are the God who knows and the God who is present and that's all we need to know. Sufficient for this moment is your grace. You will work whatever happens. You will work it all out for the good of those who love you. That is a promise and we thank you for it. Help us, Lord. Inhabit our praises now as we sing some more. In Jesus' name, amen.